Coming up this hour, does it actually matter if President Trump concedes? And then when we're so busy, how do we rest? You're listening to The Common Good. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on uh, a gray uh, a gray afternoon. And uh, Ian, woke up to snow today. So when you woke up to snow today, was that an exciting thing? Or was it like, a oh, I can't believe there's snow on the ground? No, I just woke up 10 minutes ago, so I missed it. <laughs> pastor's life. Hashtag pastor's life. <laughs> yeah, right. I feel like anytime you mention a hashtag, you always yell it like your macho man Randy Savage. Like it's always hashtag like a, pastor's it's life. It's always like a Doritos Extreme type of voice, just in your face. That is true. Uh, random fact: Macho Man Randy Savage went to my uh, the same high school that now my uh, daughter goes to. By the way, Downers Grove. I feel North like you brought that up no fewer than half a dozen times. It's the greatest. It's the greatest little tidbit about the new about the area. <laughs> so, how did you feel when the snow was on the ground this morning? Oh, I don't. I don't mind it. It was nice. I, uh, you know, it's holiday ish season. We mentioned yesterday that I'm typically like pretty staunchly Christmas music decorations not until the first Sunday of Advent, but. You know, all bets are off in 2020. So we've been listening to a little Christmas music, put the tree up a couple of days ago. So to wake up to snow, I thought, ah, why not? I thought it was OK. I thought it was pleasant. I'm not one of those like total despondency or like complete elation mm-hmm. on the first snow. I, I'm guessing maybe you are less less happy. Yeah, not total despondency, I would give you, but I <laughs> okay. saw it. I was like, okay, here we go. So it was kind of fun, though. We got, If you remember, a couple over the summer, we got a new dog, a second dog. And so this was her first time ever experiencing snow. So that's mm. always fun. And uh, and you do have little kids. They they probably get a little more wide-eyed to snow. and uh, They just have big yeah. eyes in general, like anatomically speaking. <laughs> They're constantly wide-eyed. Mark that down for for later on to play for them over, when they get Oversized sunglasses just to cover the entire... Uh, Entire retina, yeah. <laughs> well, we're excited. Later on in the show, we're going to be joined by Matt Sorens. He is the uh, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy at World Relief. Uh, as we talk about uh, the article he wrote in Christianity Today uh, about a Biden administration reopening to refugees in the U.S. and what does that mean for churches and such. Uh, anything we talk about today, you can find it on Facebook, at The Common Good Radio Show. Also online at 1160hope.com. And we have our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, Ian and I, we're uh, going to be taking the rest of the week off after today, but uh, fret we not, are? there will be, <laughs> I am. Oh. <laughs> yes, we are. Oh, it's a little thing called Thanksgiving. So, uh, but there will be uh, a lot of the interviews we've done over the past couple of months. We'll be playing them over the next couple of days. So we hope that you still tune in as you're enjoying, hopefully, a little Thanksgiving break. So. Uh, yesterday, Ian, the big news in our country uh, was that the Trump administra- administration officially authorized the Biden transition. Uh, it's been kind of something that hasn't obviously happened. But now the General Services Administration and the administrator, Emily Murphy, uh, who had been holding back from uh, acknowledging that Joe Biden uh, won the election and therefore kind of standing in the way, <clears throat> excuse me, of the transition happening, uh, wrote a long letter that got leaked yesterday, basically uh, acknowledging that he won the election and beginning the the process for a transition. Now, President Trump did still acknowledge we are fighting and we're not going to uh, just kind of stop the fight for this. But a lot of people did acknowledge that uh, that this was kind of the closest thing we're going to get to a concession. 
and so uh, a second article here, and this one, one I wanted to talk about out of CNN, uh, it says Donald Trump doesn't need to concede. It says conceding a lost election is the classy thing to do, and it has usually been part of the country coming together after a divisive campaign. But as the thing goes on, as this article goes on to say, uh, it really doesn't matter whether the president officially concedes or not. And that's where I wanted to start here. I want to ask you, do you think it matters uh, for the healing of the country and kind of a, a unifying thing, uh, a little bit more unity if uh, President Trump concedes or not? Or do you think it doesn't really matter at this point? I think it does matter. Yes. Okay. Why do you think it matters? I mean, for all the reasons that you just mentioned, you know, the article goes on to kind of outline why it's a custom but not required by law. But I mean, not dissimilar from that now infamous blog post from John Piper that the moral behavior of our leaders does also actually matter. Obviously, concession, you could argue, isn't a it's not a moral issue necessarily. But I mean, when when you can influence the stock market from your Twitter account, Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's also safe to say that something like a concession does have real life implications, not just for the markets, but also just for the, you know, the healing of the nation. But I, you know, if you're of the perspective that a uh, concession would be in any way accepting total deceit or deception, then, you know, I could I could see a, a digging into the heels to never offer a concession. I'll be really curious to see how that actually plays out like is ryan secret's gonna host it like is it gonna be a sort of uh, <laughs> at this like, point coming up next on eviction notice like how does i don't understand i'm not sure how that's gonna play out but uh yeah I, I think i think it's important it is a valid point there did come i i think the most um uh common one or, or the the most one that was like this was in 2000 when al gore and george w bush there was all the court cases over Florida. And man, to think back that that was like less than a thousand votes or something like that. Right. Uh, but there came a time right before Christmas where Al Gore got up and spoke and conceded or, you know, basically the Supreme Court had ruled. But he conceded and kind of asked for unity and we're going to support the president and all of this time. Uh, and, and from my perspective, I, I think uh, while, you know, it's kind of gone on for a while, I do think it would be important uh, for President Trump to get up and uh, at least signal to his followers, his most passionate followers, uh, now's the time to kind of rally behind and to unify. And even if we're going to continue to claim that this was robbed from us, uh, that we're not going to keep fighting uh, and we're going to go. But as you said, if you believe that it was robbed, then maybe uh, you don't ever do that. Do you think it would change the perception of uh, so not only would it serve as a unifying factor, do you think it would turn it would change at all the perspective of people, you know, who don't like President Trump, who voted against him, who are mad that he hasn't conceded? Do you think if he got up tomorrow and gave a gave a speech in which it was there was some graciousness and and it was, you know what, I'm going to step aside, uh, whether we could ever see that happening or not uh, is a different subject. But do you think if he did that, that would affect people on the other side of the aisle? I mean, I think it would affect people. I don't think it would change the holistic perception of him. But, you know, like we learned this in communicating that people, re- they remember most vividly the first things you said and the last things you said. You know, so I think mm. to be able to end on a note like that, we're like, ah, you know what? All right. Here's a speech. Here's a concession. Here's a phone call. <laughs> um, again, I think I think people have probably made up their minds either way. That's a topic mm-hmm. that we've covered a number of times on the show. But I feel like it would be a I think it'd be decently received it, it my my brother yesterday who 
I don't know if this is safe. To, it was on Facebook. It's fair game. He said, um, <laughs> he said, Trump is leaving the White House the way that my children go to bed or something like that. Just like the, <laughs> you know, the bargaining and the drawing it out and, and all that. He said it funnier than that. But that, again, people are still going to have that opinion. But uh, I feel like a speech could be uh, a helpful thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just hoping it doesn't last all the way till, you know, inauguration day and something weird comes on. This article goes on to say that there is going to come a point where Mike Pence, as the vice president, has to fulfill his official role of certifying the counting of electoral electoral college votes in the House chamber in January. So that could be awkward. Uh, But hopefully, hopefully there's some graciousness here. But I thought this was an interesting article about what happens if the president never concedes. What's is does that actually matter? We've got this up at our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. Uh, you can check that out and let us know what I'd you probably, think. Well, come, I'd probably, I'd probably set up a concession stand. That's what, that's what I would oh, do. Oh, see, you were waiting for that joke, and that was a good one. That it was wasn't a good that, one. It wasn't that good. Don't <laughs> encourage me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Coming up next, Time Magazine: Why you're regressing to your teenage self during COVID nineteen. That's coming up next year on the Common Good, AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. With Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for being with us today. Ever since March, we've been talking about COVID-19 and not just the restrictions and how life has changed, but also just what's it doing to our psyche? What's it doing to us as people? Uh, And uh, you point out this article from Time Magazine that's entitled this, Why You're Regressing to Your Teenage Self during the COVID-19 No, I'm outbreak. not. <laughs> I, know. I read that. I'm like, you've got me on this one. Because <laughs> why you're regressing to your teenage self during the COVID-19 outbreak? Why don't you uh, get us into this article? Why don't I, Brian? <laughs> you're good. Okay, sorry. <laughs> you're rolling today, man. You are like, rolling. Most teenagers I know don't behave like that at all, actually. So that's an unfair character. <laughs> Which uh, is us. We did. Okay, perfect. All right. So this is from Jamie... Ducharme? Is that, is that right, you think? That's what I'm going with, too. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Since she graduated high school, Kayla Stetso, a 26-year-old law student living in Chicago, hadn't spent any significant time in her father's house in Indiana. Then COVID-19 hit. Not wanting to spend months alone in her small city apartment, Stetzel decided to move back in with her father and inadvertently found herself reliving her adolescence. Her electric <laughs> guitar and the, the OC. Is that a show? OC? It was or, a show, Orange yeah, County. I'm thinking yeah. of the Christian band, the OC Supertones. But <laughs> not that are you, from, are you familiar with them? That doesn't matter. I um, am. I am. I am. <laughs> either way, those shows, DVDs came out of storage. She adopted sleep and eating habits. Even a teenager would find indulgent. And she found herself studying for law school exams in the exact same place she did her grade school homework. I'm stressed out about school and playing very angry rock and roll music in my basement, she says. It's very surreal. Stetzel isn't the only person having a teenage rebirth. Waves of 20 and 30-somethings turned back the clock in the early weeks of COVID-19 social distancing by retreating to their childhood homes. And even people who have not physically returned to their old surroundings are turning to nostalgic pastimes to fill the hours. Social media is awash in stories of people rediscovering old interests from craft projects to long outdated music and old school video games like Animal Crossing and The Sims are surging in <laughs> Google search trends. I'll stop j- there as, as just as a premise. Uh... Are you seeing this and are you surprised by it? 
You know, the, the thing that struck me from my own life was just just you remember the Michael Jordan documentary that came out near the beginning of COVID and it was just the biggest deal. I wonder if there's some of that in this people going, oh, like, remember the easier times, the less stressful times. Uh, yeah, I'm a little bit past this age of where this is possible to go back, but it totally makes sense, especially, uh, you know, if you were a little younger and you went back home because for whatever yeah. reason, social distancing, you didn't want to be alone because I do know that especially when before my parents moved out of my childhood home back in New Jersey, whenever I went home, even after I was married, I reverted back to acting like I was back in my parents' house as a teenager. Mm. Like, mm. you know, hey, mom, you want to do my laundry or make me a grilled cheese or something? And it was like, you know, I, I even found myself even after marriage. So I don't think this surprises me that people now living at home for a long amount of time going back and at a relatively young age, going back to that, I, I think, I think that I, I could see why that happens. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, I'm the oldest of seven. So like when I would go home, even during college, you know, I had siblings who were living out teenage years in real time, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I remembered a story just a couple of days ago, actually, in preparation for this article, I would, I had, I think I was out of undergrad and so we were home <laughs> my brother, you know, we're just all loud. I'm sure you're shocked, but like we were <laughs> in the basement way too late. You know, my dad had to get up real early for work and we were talking way too long, way too loud. Like we often did when we were kids, when we, you know, we had friends over and then we like heard my dad coming down the steps aggressively and <laughs> like children, we all scattered and hid. And I'm like, I'm 24 years old. Like, <laughs> and we all, I mean, even afterwards we're like, what were we, I mean, again, you know, my, my dad is a master at sort of like conveying that, like you, now is the time to pay attention. Yes. Now is the time you should listen. But I, I, I never forgot like how interesting it was. I don't think I ever reverted back to the degree that you're talking about, but I, there certainly were things where it, it felt almost conflicting. Like I'm this new person. I'm not that 17 year old guy. I've like learned and seed things, but there's also this other part of just, you know, geographically being in a, in a similar place. I think it, I think it really can mess with your head. Yeah. I, I might've told you this story before, but an early on fight in our marriage, my wife and I, you know, we got married. I was pretty young, 22 or so. And uh, we were going back to New Jersey to my parents' house for a holiday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, one of them. Uh, and she walked into our apartment and she walked into the room and I was in our apartment and I was packing all of my dirty clothes into a suitcase. <laughs> and she's like, what wow. are you doing? I'm like, I'm like, I'm bringing the clothes home. Uh, I made the mistake of saying, so my mom can wash them. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes and part of it was that at that point in our apartment, we had to pay to do laundry. And so she was like, that's the most ridiculous thing. You're not doing that. And I had this moment <laughs> of a, like this epiphany going. Oh, yeah, that's really weird. Like, why am I doing this? And so we made a deal that we would bring it home to do the free laundry, but we would do the laundry, not my mom. But Good. it was this really strange, like, I did just revert back to like when I'd go home from college or whatever else. And uh, I, yeah, I totally see this. I mean, and I guess there's psychology behind it. It says here, Laura Gottlieb, California based psych uh, psychotherapist says, Whenever we're in stressful situations, we tend to regress. Mm -hmm. And just to just think of how you act when you go home for the holidays, she points out everything we were just talking about. Uh, and she says, while there's potentially destructive forms of regression, like snapping at loved ones over Thanksgiving turkey, it can also be a subconscious form of self-soothing. So I, that's what I find interesting. It's not just falling back into old patterns, but there is this probably that she's saying here, the sense of safety of like, I'm going home. Uh, you know, there, that might have been more of a simpler time in my life, a safer time. 
and I'm kind of going back into that. Do you think that's what she's saying? And if so, does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I think it's interesting that the article mentions the significance of music a couple of times, you know, the uh, which I, I have actually done a couple of times this pandemic, not realizing it, like just I mean, I also just got a Spotify account for the first time in my life. So mm. I'm like sort of the whole universe has opened up to me. But um, I've seen other documentaries where people one of them is called Alive Inside, actually. It's people who, uh, you know, sometimes they're in their 70s, 80s, 90s and haven't talked in some cases for years. Someone found the music from their youth, from their childhood, and all of a sudden they started moving. And in some cases, like talking and even dancing again, there's there's a lot wow. of brain research around the significance of not just music in general, although that does have implications, but like the music from our youth having very interesting like neurological benefits. And I, I just think that coupled with, you know, a lot of people being back in familiar geography, I just think that's really interesting. Did you see the kind of viral clip going around Facebook and Twitter? I don't know, probably two weeks ago of the Alzheimer's patient who was in her wheelchair and her son or grandson. Uh, she used to be like the prima ballerina in New York and they played like uh what's the, the Swan or, or whatever it's called from the, the famous ballet thing and she started doing the moves in her wheelchair oh yeah uh, i saw that beautiful. it was it was beautiful beautiful and just crazy like the way the mind works and so yeah i guess there's something to that although gottlieb goes on to say the beauty of adulthood is we have much stronger coping skills than we did when we were younger that kind of the adults still in there uh, but maybe this is maybe this is how you're living right now and you've got some stories to tell go to our facebook page we'd love to hear them uh, the Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, Gospel Coalition wrote this, I'm so busy, how can I rest? Going to discuss that next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Hope you're having a good week, getting prepared for the big Thanksgiving holiday. And uh, Ian, we're going to talk about Gospel Coalition of course, they put out a list because that's what the Gospel Coalition does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the article is entitled, I'm so busy. How can I ever rest? How can I rest? But before we do that, this feels like the right time. My need. I, I need it. I want to know the holidays for today. It's super weird, Brian. There's literally only two on, on the list. Usually there's like five to 15. Okay. There's just two. So the first one's serious. It's a Sikh holiday. Uh, martyrdom of Guru Teg Bahadur Sahib. I know okay. that you, you celebrate every year. Uh, yes, I have the tree then, up. And yes. then also National Sardines Day. So, oh, go. how gross is that? You can't <laughs> like sardines, right? You know, I can't honestly say that I've ever tried. My rumor has it my dad used to make peanut butter sardine sandwiches. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. It is something about our dads who all ate really weird stuff. Like a peanut butter sardine doesn't make sense. You know what? I can I have vivid memories of my dad and my my wife also has memories of my father in law uh, ingesting a good amount of spam. Was that a, did that happen with your dad or was that? Uh... <laughs> I mean, if if it if it did, it was in private. I don't I don't remember, <laughs> I don't remember spam making a lot of uh, appearances in our household. Can I tell you one of my uh, favorite sandwiches, maybe my actual favorite sandwich when I was a little kid, liverwurst and cheese. Mm, mm, mm. So, yes, either the spreadable or the sliced, it didn't matter. So anyway, yeah, that just sounds I don't know if I could eat that now, but that was back then. 
uh, Gospel Coalition. We get a lot of articles from them and they tend to be lists. And this one I found interesting just because of how a lot of us are feeling these days. It says, I'm so busy. How can I rest? This is written by Tina Dare. She says, I work in healthcare and my job has been very busy. Five of my colleagues are either moms or pregnant, so they're being given extra time off. Our boss is flexible. I don't begrudge them the time to tend to their families. However, I'm single and I often I am often asked to pick up their time and their tasks. I really want to love and serve them, but I confess I'm struggling with exhaustion and resentment. What should I do? Here's the answer. Moms and expectant mothers probably need a little extra grace in this season, but so do you. Perhaps you have more flexibility and availability as a single person, which can be stewarded to serve both your team and also your patients. But just as parents must balance their work inside and outside your ho- the home, you must also steward your physical, emotional, and spiritual health, as well as cultivate your home and relationships. Before having kids, I often underestimated the amount of rest I needed. I treated my body and schedule like a computer program. Uh, I could just turn on indefinitely until I crashed or ran out of juice. When God was forming his people after the Exodus, one of the most important things he emphasized was Sabbath. This rest wasn't just for families or certain professions. It was universally mandated for anyone dwelling among his people. Sabbath was and is a time to worship God, enjoy the gifts of his creation, and spend time with one another. It reveals something unique and beautiful about our God and his desires for his people. We are precious to him, but not not merely useful to him. Here are five. Here are three truths. This is going to be the list to internalize. Uh, Ian, you and I have done this show enough that I know that you believe strongly and teach a lot about Sabbath. Uh, but what makes it hard for you in your life to, uh, let's say, practice what you preach? Uh, Prob, I'm sure there are seasons where you find this difficult. What are those? What do those seasons look like for you? Yeah, I mean, you you ask why I find it difficult. Uh, because I'm a broken sinner, Brian. That's why <laughs> it, is, it is so bizarre to care so deeply about a topic I'm so bad at implementing. Does that make sense? Like it is surreal. So I like I like writing about it. I like preaching about it. I like reading about it. And I'm I'm terrible at it. I made a post yesterday actually where I, I started it by saying, you know, it's interesting that alcoholics get help, but workaholics get applause. You know what I mean? Like we, hmm. our culture in a lot of ways, props up and celebrates workaholism burning the candle at both ends Mm -hmm. a constantly packed schedule and conversely sometimes kind of like looks down at like boy is he on vacation oh my gosh did he leave the office already oh my like it's a very strange part of what i said you know in the rest of the post was that in a in a culture consumed with production and performance rest is warfare and then i i ended up by saying you are not created for a life you don't have time for like i think a lot of us Mm -hmm. are like yeah but there's so much to do and i'm like God knows that he knows what you need. Like we're in the you know Sermon on the Mount right now. And we're just talking about look at look at the birds, look at the, look at the flowers. Like it's okay to hustle. It's okay to work really really hard. Mm-hmm. I think we actually should as Christ followers. But man, and that preaches to me personally. Like I can really get caught up in constant production, constant going. And I think underneath that, and maybe this is true for a lot of Enneagram threes. There's a certain sense of like I'm only as valuable as what I can provide. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can that can be really really toxic. Yeah, absolutely. And then you add in, you know, the smartphones we have and social sure. media and always being connected and it just can be a real problem for for a lot of us. And so they give three truths to internalize. Let me uh I'll give you the first one. We'll quickly run through this. The first one says this, uh rest invites you to be made whole in him. 
Your service and sacrifice on behalf of your patients in this case and coworkers is a tangible way to embody self-giving love. But in order to sustain this service, you need time with the giver of life. The burdens heaped on your shoulders throughout a shift need to be handed over to the one who holds the world in his hands. Allow this lament to bring you to the foot of the cross where the fullness of love is displayed. Invite the risen Christ to restore you in his presence and empower you with his spirit to continue loving his world like he does. That's a good one. Why don't you give us number two? I would love to. Number two, cultivates, uh, rest cultivates hope in a kingdom that will be full of goodness and beauty. Burnout and compassion uh, fatigue are real. When days are filled with death and suffering, life's brightness slowly dims. The enemy longs to draw us into despair, but this is our father's world. He has already won the victory. Our hope is in a God who created all things good and will fully restore every square inch. True rest restores us to our humanity. This requires us to engage the world with our physical body, to feel the sun on our skin, to create art, to restore order, to take a walk through the neighborhood or on a mountain trail. These can be acts of worship as we enjoy the things he rejoices over. They help us reimagine the world in light of resurrection, hope, Mm. and the hope of new life. I think that's so beautifully written and way more important to recognize that Sabbath and rest isn't just about like taking a break so you can get back at it. Like it's way more kingdom focused than that. That's good. Number three, uh, rest makes space for relationships. A Swedish proverb echoing the words of Romans 12, 15 goes like this. A joy shared is a joy doubled. A sorrow shared is a sorrow halved. When you're running on empty, it can be, it can feel exhausting to engage relationally, but it's what you need more than ever before. Inviting trusted friends into your grief and joy and finding strength to join them in theirs is necessary and good. Staying connected to your church family, which may feel harder than ever before, Mm -hmm. will remind you that your work plays a part in a much larger story. God has formed a people to display his love in the way they care for one another and in turn love the world. Your primary identity is first as a member of God's beloved family and then as a healthcare worker. Uh, I think these are really good. What, as we close this out, Ian, you've said you've taught a lot about it, thought a lot about it. Somebody who doesn't do this well, who's listening, what's one tangible step they can take that will move them towards embracing something like this? Oh gosh, it's going to sound really cliche, but you you just have to do it. Like mm-hmm. it's one thing. I think a lot of us don't go to the gym because oh, I think I got to get a membership and I got to get the right clothes or, you know, or we don't learn an instrument. Like, oh, then I got to go decide the instrument and buy the instrument. Sabbath and rest like Sabbath means, you know, stop. Shabbat means stop. It's something that we can do without any prior membership or resource, just decide to do it. And I would say probably also invite people into that, like to keep you accountable, much Mm -hmm. like any of those other tasks. Like, Hey, you know, for the next four weeks, I want to really be mindful to like rest on, on Saturdays. And here's kind of what I'm intending to do there. Also, uh, practicing the way.org. That's John Mark Comer in Bridgetown church. They have a number of beautiful Sabbath resources that you can download and listen and watch. And even like a worksheet, that'd be a great place to start if you're interested in, in kind of learning more. That's really good. It's a good article here. It, it, it'll, it'll, uh, kind of test you here if this is somewhere you struggle. So we'd encourage you to read it at our Facebook page, the common good radio show. Well, coming up next, uh, two pastors here. We're going to talk a little bit about the Bible. Let's do that next here on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're doing well today. 
and looking forward to a good Thanksgiving week. Are you still in here? I didn't prep you for this, but are you looking forward to Thanksgiving or is all the weirdness of COVID and not being able to be with people and this kind of taking away from it? How are you feeling leading into the holiday? I mean, it's kind of a bull fan. It's definitely weird, but you got to find the the bright moments. You know, if you can't, if you can't find some of it, I mean, listen, I'll be straight with you, Brian. Okay. I'm a Detroit Lions fan. So Thanksgiving, <laughs> Thanksgiving has always been difficult. It's always been tough. That is it's so bizarre, too, because the game is usually uh, so earlier. So nothing quite like kicking off the day with like a really disappointing loss. And so then true. And then having like a big family gathering where we talk about what we're grateful for. Like we all have to like shake off the depression. Like, OK, well, at least we have each other. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I mean, obviously. Oh, that's nothing, so true. I had nothing of the that. caliber of a pandemic weirdness. But, yeah, you got to look for the bright spots. Because it's always the Lions, right? It's always the Lions and it's always the Cowboys in the second yep. game. Yep. But because it's Thanksgiving, they would always want you guys to play like a well-known team. So you're always playing the mm-hmm. Packers or the Bears, but then also like the Patriots or somebody oh, else. Yeah. They started adding other games because the, the streak of losses we sustained was starting to depress <laughs> the nation. Like, we got to throw it's some so other games true. in here. This is just awful. Like the whole world is watching the it's Lions. So true. And for the rest of us who weren't the rest of us who weren't Lions fans, at least it was a time of the year we could watch Barry Sanders. But then when he retired, it was nothing. I know. (laughs) Don't even. Well, I. So this isn't a hard Thanksgiving for you. This is just a Thanksgiving for you this Uh, week. Racing for impact. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, uh, last segment we did a Gospel Coalition article, and I grabbed another one for us to discuss because I thought this was an interesting. An interesting idea written by Vanitha Rendell Risner. It's entitled this. When my life fell apart, I needed a Bible that wouldn't. When my life fell apart, I needed a Bible that wouldn't. Why don't you get us into this article and we'll talk about it. Well, as someone who has a Bible that is currently falling apart, I am am interested in this. Uh, This is from November 17th. It says, I don't think I can make it through this pain. I just don't see how. I've heard that statement numerous times with all the despair it carries. I've even said it myself. In suffering or sorrow, when each day feels harder than the one before with no end in sight, I've wondered how I'll make it through, let alone find joy and fulfillment. Oh, sounds like a Lions fan. Years ago, <laughs> a trusted friend offered me wisdom she recalled from Charles Spurgeon. Quote, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. In the midst of my pain, she told me to read the Bible and pray. She urged me to fall in love with the word because it would get me through anything. I nodded, but I really wanted something more, an inspiring book to read, a stirring sermon to listen to, some practical advice to follow, a a conference to attend, a pill to swallow. I wanted to feel better fast. Scripture seemed distant and difficult, an obligation more than a source of help. Reading the Bible felt like eating cardboard, dry, hard to swallow, and unsatisfying. At tough times, I'd pulled away from reading it, looking instead for a, quote, thought of the day or a friendly voice to cheer me up. They promised quicker relief than the heavy and daunting pages of an ancient book. And yet, Through all my trials, nothing has had a lasting impact on me like reading the Bible. I really appreciate this setup, by the way, because I think a lot of people feel this way about Bible reading at times or maybe often. And it sometimes feels like church leaders and pastors uh, seem unwilling to admit that that's true. Like, no, it's always vibrant and all this, the living word of God. And so I think we sometimes Mm -hmm. create this chasm between ourselves and our churches or our communities where they're like, well, it feels like cardboard to me. So either yeah. I'm not doing it right or I'm missing something. And I, yeah, I, I appreciate this setup and I imagine probably a lot of people feel the same way. Absolutely. And I too, as you were reading it, I said, yeah, you know, 
some of those other things, whether it be uh, an inspirational book or whatever, are good. Uh, but that the Bible sometimes it's just really hard to read. And you, you bring up a good point because people hear from pastors being like, oh, it's living and active. It's this, which is true. Uh, but, it, you know, sometimes I think the danger is we we kind of prop it up like every time you open it, light just comes out, you know, uh -huh. like, and like just starts. Right. Uh, and then people go, either they're doing something wrong or we're not telling the truth. One of the two. Uh, but she's saying that in her darkest time, and listen to this for next sentence. I just, the story behind this must be awful. She said, when my infant son, Paul, died because of a doctor's mistake. Mm. That's unbelievable. Right there. She said, I stopped reading scripture because I felt God couldn't be trusted. Right. But when I finally turned back to him, I found comfort in the Psalms of lament. They gave me words when I had none. And as I said them back to God, I was surprised by their power to change, uh, to change me. When I was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome, a painful condition that could leave me a quadriplegic, I understood God's promises afresh. He would be my strength and shield. And then hours later, when my husband left me to parent two adolescent daughters alone, I had nowhere else to go for wisdom or comfort or hope. I turned to God's word for everything. That's a lot there, man. Yeah. Uh, within weeks, I began to systematically read through the Bible, including Old Testament books I'd long ignored. I read intentionally rather than to mindlessly flipping around. I made it a priority. Uh, let me ask you, Ian, you and I, I feel like since we've started this show, I've had more conversations on this show about lament and reading Psalms of lament and lamentations. And it's made me wonder is, I don't know how else to ask this. Like, is this like a new thing people are talking about, kind of recognizing about the Bible? Obviously, we all know it's there, but like a new focus. Or is this just something that I just wasn't necessarily raised on? Because I feel like I'm hearing people talk about the Psalms of lament and lamentations and going to God, you know, going to the Bible and finding that there than I ever did before. And so I, I guess I'm asking, is this, uh, is this new to you or is this just a deficiency in my, uh, in my skull, in my work? <laughs> oh, those are my two options. It's either new to they me are. or I get, I get to tell you you're deficient. I, um, but it, it certainly seems like a focus these days. Think of Aubrey Sampson and her work, but I think yes. we've had lots of people on writing about lament, talking about lament. And I certainly think that's really helpful. Yeah. I, I would probably say two things. I do think it's having a bit of a moment right now. With a caveat, I think it's having a moment in like Western evangelicalism. I think a lot of our good point Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters have had a a much firmer holistic grasp on lament uh, and things surrounding it, and and have for centuries, to be honest. Um, which is interesting because I think in some ways seeing sort of this uptick, this trend right now. This is all just speculatory. I don't I don't actually sure, know. Sure. It feels like there's a reaction to sort of like the constant polish up and to the right, always a winner, always victory sort of sentimentality that people often see in churches. Again, not all churches, but I think it, I think it's safe to say that often is a, it's a very popular sort of depiction. And people are saying, well, that doesn't feel true to my actual lived experiences though. And so I think people, I think the lament is more than just like, oh, I find a lot of comfort in that. I think it's, I think it's formational. I think it's really critical that, um, that we engage that part of our heart and soul as well. I think people are kind of waking up to that here in the West. Yeah, she writes at the very end. Again, her name is Vanitha Rendell Risner. Uh, she writes, the flashy and dramatic experiences that I often sought out didn't last and couldn't sustain me. It was the daily, ordinary working of the word that mm -hmm. transformed me. I, I think that's a good word. It, you know, I would... Uh, somebody comes to you in your church and they go, Pastor, I don't even know how to start reading the Bible. I don't. I just don't get it. I don't know how to read... 
again, I asked you this like last time, but this kind of like, what's one or two takeaways? What's a, what's one first step for somebody who feels like, yeah, it feels like not only like cardboard, but I don't even really know what to do. Man, I, I am a big believer in like reading a physical Bible if you can. Mm-hmm. However, downloading like the, uh, the Bible app, the Uversion app, there are so many like plans and outlines and structures. If you just type in type for the Bible, like there's a, they'll outline it for you. Like, all right, we'll give you a, we'll walk you through a gospel and some Psalms. I, I just think there's a lot of resources available um, that kind of help walk people through it rather than like, just read this chapter. Best of luck. Kind of explain mm-hmm. why the four gospels seem like they're telling the same story over and over again, or like, Oh my gosh, I'm stuck in numbers. How long is this going to last? You know, if you just started <laughs> in Genesis and went for it. So I think, yep. I, yeah, I would, something like you version is pretty tried and true. Bible gateway has a bunch of really helpful resources that you can look up. And you mentioned it, Aubrey Sampson's book specifically on Lament, if you want to know more, The Louder Song is a, a tremendous resource. Absolutely. Well, you can find, again, that article from the Gospel Coalition, When My Life Fell Apart, I Need a Bible That Wouldn't, uh, up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next hour, we're going to talk about TikTok and then be joined by Matthew Sorens, the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about TikTok. And then Matt Sorens, the Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief, is going to join us. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. It's rainy. It's dark. It's a little dreary. But hey. Thanksgiving's coming and you're listening to the common good. So it's a good day and uh, we are gl- glad to have you with us. Uh, all right, Ian, relevant magazine, TikTok. Can I give us an article about TikTok? I think we've discussed this before, uh, but have you ever been on TikTok? Not once in my life, good sir. Is that true? Okay. I have true. not yeah. either. I have not either. And, uh, but many are you surprised other by that? Do I seem like a TikToker to you? No, you do not seem like a TikToker. You do seem like somebody who would have tried it out just to see what it, what all the fuss is about. Like, okay, That's a good I'll, point. I'll yeah. give it a try. I'll give it yeah. a try. I have not. And uh, and I uh, truthfully, I could see you posting a TikTok dance with your sons, all cute. I, I could see it. I could see it. <laughs> no one, no one needs to see me dancing. In any, maybe in any you region. and I doing a common good TikTok dance would be what what the world needs right now. Boy, that just oh might boy. be. Gotta go. Best uh, of luck with the rest of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Time to find that new co-host. <laughs> uh, well, uh, the, why are we talking about TikTok? What well, relevant magazine? Here's the title of this article. Inside TikTok's wild COVID-19 vaccine as Christian persecution meme. That's a mouthful right there. Let me yeah. read that again from Tyler Huckabee. We've had Tyler Huckabee on before, haven't we? We have not. Okay. I thought we did. We should have him on. It says... Inside TikTok's wild COVID-19 vaccine as Christian persecution meme. Let me read a little bit of this. TikTok memes run the gamut from bizarre to hilarious to even genuinely thoughtful or daringly creative. But like any social media platform, great power comes with great responsibility and not every user is quite up to the task. Uh, Take user. I can't even read that one. Okay. It's Taylor Rousseau, a TikTok user with over 560,000 followers. 
Most of her TikToks are the usual mix of little skits, dances, makeup tips, and meme variation. But one video picked up a lot of attention for swerving into end times prophecy in which a vaccine is the mark of the beast. Sure. Uh, Taylor is martyred for refusing to take it in her thing, in her TikTok, and God rewards her for her anti-vax faithfulness in heaven with a well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, OK, that's a little strange, he writes, but it's 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 a one off, right? Wrong. A second TikToker posted more or less the exact same video. Uh, one woman in this video consents to a vaccine, which is also a microchip, and lives. The other refuses and is apparently beaten to death before going to heaven and receiving a well done. Two users doesn't exactly constitute a thing, but it caused enough of a stir that now parodies are being made of this. The persecution narrative, he writes, isn't exactly new. Christians of a certain age will probably remember how the Columbine shootings inspired a way of possibly apocryphal tales of, about how some of the victims were mar modern day martyrs uh, killed in school shootings. Of course, this mentality predates even those days with the books of Left Behind and so on. The idea of the mark of the beast. All right, I'm going to pause there. I didn't know these existed, but you and I did do a story a couple weeks ago about the power of uh, TikTok evangelism right now and, and what's going on with that. Uh, I didn't know this existed at all, these kind of memes going around. Uh, but uh, so here, here are my two questions. What do you think of this, just this story in general? But then are you increasingly hearing this about vaccines in general, not vaccines, about the COVID-19 vaccine from people in your circles on your Facebook that like this is uh, some greater thing out of the book of Revelation? Are you hearing that from people? Yeah, I mean, first, I think this is solid biblical exegesis, Brian. I think it's, uh, <laughs> it's really, I'm so glad you laughed. Somebody somebody just tuning in is like, huh? What? <laughs> That's not what I know of, Ian. Uh, yeah, I don't, well, do we have time to get into it? I don't, we probably we don't. Do. I'll, just, I'll just simply say, um, no, I, I don't agree with this. Secondly, I'm not surprised by it. Third, a part of me always wonders when things like this go so viral I'm like does the person that made it even believe this or do they just know that it'll right. get traction that's always kind of worrying in the back of my mind fourth i'm somehow answering four questions when you ask me to um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i have seen this yeah this is this is the i've certainly heard rumors of things like this i mean even pre-covid but specifically uh, i almost expected it to be honest when news of a global pandemic was really making headlines you know in the states it was it was only a matter of days, I think, before mm -hmm. I, I heard people start speculating about vaccine as Mark of the Beast. So, yeah, I, I have heard it. I have seen it. I don't agree with it. Theologically, I don't think it holds up, but I am not entirely surprised by it. Same questions for you, Brian. Yeah, I would say that just recently I've heard from some people as the vaccine news is coming out, people you know, I understand people who are like, I do or don't want to take it uh, on medical terms. But some people I have heard uh, say, I believe this is not just the government trying to control us, but it's the mark of the beast. And I'm like, oh, OK, like I, I, I guess it shouldn't surprise me, but I didn't quite expect it when they said that to me. But um, how, what's your answer to people? You, I'm sure you do it very calmly, very pastorally. <laughs> Not just around just this topic, but people who are constantly looking for the book of Revelation stuff going on right now, trying to see the end of the world's here because of this. Here's the mark of the beast or here's the signs that says Jesus is coming back. How do you help people walk through that pastorally? Well, typically, 
I refer them to people much smarter than me. I had a professor mm-hmm. in Judson, uh, Dr. Michael McKeever, very active on social media right here in Chicagoland. Uh, he's been an incredible resource. I've, I think probably even a couple of times, even like given people his email address so people could ask questions, you know, is that right? More into, Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he just is, I think he's, he's incredibly brilliant. He's pastoral in his responses, you know, cause that's not always the case. There's sometimes there are brilliant people that, um, uh, could use some coaching in the shepherding department. You're like, Oh <laughs> yeah, I see your point, but gosh, you are real mean. He just, he just is like a brilliant, he's an educator, you know, so he's used to kind of like walking people, through some of these discussions, I I haven't mm-hmm. talked to him about this in a in a long time, but my guess is, right now in this season, he uh, he has probably fielded questions like this, a a number of times. I don't, I don't know if you have a, a Michael McKeever or how you respond to these kind of questions. I, I don't, so I will take his email off the air from you. But I would say, <laughs> uh, you know, as questions in general, when people want to talk about the end of the world and this and that, I you know. Uh, I do try to point them to better work, scholarly works than what I could ever give them. I don't have a person I send them to, but I, I've also tried to gently point out to some people that constantly looking for the end of the world and the coming of Jesus kind of takes our mind off, takes our, our, our eyes off of the mission we've been called to right now. Like we're, we're called to be about some work. Uh, and, and this kind of, uh, is tomorrow the day and I'm going to get pulled out of here. And what's each of these charts mean? And what does this mean? Like that could be, you could get real obsessed with that. And it can really uh, take away from what we've been called to. I mean, even Jesus said, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how it's all going to play. I remember he said that in the gospels. And so uh, I, I think it is, I understand why people uh, are interested in it and why the left behind books did so well in the Kirk Cameron movies and this and that. But I think, uh, we know what we're called to do, and I, I think that a refocusing on that is helpful. And um, I think we should prepare ourselves for when this vaccine comes out, that this talk, there's going to be many more articles like this, I suspect, that we're going to do. <laughs> I yeah. think it's coming down the road. So uh, anyway, coming up next, uh, speaking of people smarter than us, Matthew Sorens, the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief. Uh, he's been on the show a couple times before. He's going to join us again to talk about uh, an article at Christianity Today. Uh, we're excited to have Matt join us next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, we're thrilled to be joined again. He's been on a few times and gracious enough to join us again today. Matt Sorens, uh, the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief, as well as the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table. Matt, thanks for coming back on. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing well. I was glad to be with you guys. Absolutely. For those who don't remember or maybe haven't heard you before, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Um, So I, as you said, I've got a couple different titles, but I uh, work at a Christian organization called World Relief, which has uh, our World Relief Chicagoland has three offices in the city and the suburbs, uh, as well as around the United States that um, work with local churches to serve refugees and other immigrants, as well as um, we work internationally as well. And yeah, I also help coordinate something called the Evangelical Immigration Table, which is a, a collaborative effort between a bunch of national Christian groups, really trying to help both people in congregations think about issues of immigration from a distinctly Christian biblical perspective, 
as well as helping our, our lawmakers and policymakers think through those same principles as they uh, consider immigration policy. And, and I'm here in the Chicagoland area. I live in Aurora. So you you couldn't possibly be more qualified to have this discussion. Is what I'm hearing. And uh, you actually you wrote a brilliant article for Christianity Today called uh, the headline reads, the U.S. will reopen to refugees. Is the U.S. church ready? And we're going to get there in a second. But I, I'd love for you to take just a minute or two. And would you kind of give us a flyover of what President-elect Biden is is poised to do regarding these policies, just so that we all have kind of a similar grasp of what's going on? Sure. So refugee resettlement is sort of one subset of immigration. It's specifically for people who the U.S. government has identified overseas who meet our legal definition of a refugee, someone who has fled a credible fear of persecution in their country of origin and is now in a second country. So they're either in a camp or uh, maybe living in a city, but they're they're in an, an unstable situation. And a very small percentage of the world's refugees historically, uh, like 1%, get selected for resettlement to a different country. And the U.S. has historically led the way in that. Other countries like Canada or Australia do it as well. But the U.S. has historically been the leader. That's actually changed in the last few years. Um, the number of refugees the U.S. has taken has gone dramatically down. And that's been President Trump's decision because he has the authority under the law to set the what's called the ceiling for refugee admissions. But President-elect Biden has now said he will be returning to uh, what would be not an unprecedented level of refugee resettlement, but a historically high level of refugee resettlement. Hmm. Uh, he said he'll set the ceiling at 125,000 refugees compared to the 15,000 that President Trump has most recently set it at. So that's a big increase um, in a short period of time. Hmm. And uh, I, I'm excited about that. I think, as I said, as you said in the, this is an opportunity for the American church, including mm-hmm. um, here locally as in other parts of the country. Um, but it's also a challenge and one that I hope the church is ready for. Yeah. Uh, just so people can understand. And, and so I can understand, uh, let's say when when President elect Biden takes office and the ceiling goes up, uh, does that happen overnight or is this a gradual thing? How does how will this kind of practically play out in our country? Yeah, it's a gradual thing. And honestly, I think one hundred twenty five thousand is a. It's a really important symbol to the world that we are taking leadership in terms of of forced migration once again. But I think it's probably not real likely that we actually have 125,000 refugees resettled by the end of the federal fiscal year, which is by the end of September 2021. And that's because, you know, contrary to what folks may have heard in certain media, our country actually has a very thorough vetting process for refugees. Right. It's, an, mm-hmm. it's actually the most thorough vetting that our government has for any category of visitor or immigrant who comes into the United States. And it usually takes at least 18 months to complete. Mm-hmm. So there are about 120,000 people currently in the pipeline. So already you're at less than 125,000 who are even, you know, have even taken the, are being considered by the U.S. government for resettlement. But a lot of those people are at the beginning of that 18 month to three year vetting process. So it's it would take a a very significant um, effort to to vet enough people to bring in 125,000 refugees this year. I don't think we'll get to that, but I do think uh, that we will see well more than 15,000 refugees. So the numbers will go up significantly this year and probably then continue to rise in coming years. Interesting. So the whole premise of your article is about the church's opportunity with regard to all of that. And one of the things that I've noticed is that a number of Christians don't even understand the church's potential role in this, that for them, it's a, that's something that the government is deciding over there. I, that's not for me to decipher or to consider. And your whole premise is 
all right, the church has an opportunity. H- how will we handle it? What, what was sort of your, your, your general thesis of this article? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe many Americans don't realize it, but for a really long time, I mean, throughout American history and in a formalized way since the 1970s, refugee resettlement in the United States has been a public-private partnership. So the public side of that is the U.S. government, which is the only entity that can decide who's coming in and how many. But the private side of that is that the U.S. government has for for many decades relied on nonprofit organizations, most of which are faith-based, like World Relief, which is uh, was owned by and was started by the National Association of Evangelicals to uh, help refugees get on their feet in a new country. So we've been doing that here in Chicagoland since the late 70s, um, you know, working with uh, literally hundreds of local church partners and volunteers from local churches and from the broader community. Uh, because our goal is that when that refugee family arrives, again, we don't get to decide how many are coming or who's arriving, but from when the moment they arrive at O'Hare, we're there to meet them. And ideally, not just our staff, you know, a caseworker, but also a team from a local church that are mm-hmm. basically signing up to be friends with this family as they arrive, or, or individuals. Sometimes they're single adults, but mostly families. And um, that's been the process for a really long time. In my mind, it's a great process because it, it you know, the church both has a, a biblical uh, biblical reasons to want to show kindness to those who are vulnerable. Um, there's so many passages in the Old Testament that speak to that theme and to, uh, to practice hospitality, which literally in the Greek of the New Testament is uh, showing love for strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's also, you know, it's an opportunity for us to stand with the persecuted church. The, a lot of these folks who are resettled are actually Christians and the, they were Christians before they were refugees. And that's why they became refugees. They were persecuted on account of their Christian faith in many cases. And there are others who are not yet Christians. And, and it's an opportunity to, to show the love of Jesus in tangible ways. And, and there are um, those who, as we love people well, they, they, as they ask that question of why. And we get to, as First Peter 3 says, we're ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that is within us. And yeah. we've seen people make that choice to become followers of Jesus in the U.S. when they're welcomed and loved well by local churches and, and volunteers. Mm. Yeah. And uh, Matt's going to stay with us for another segment. We're going to talk specifically about the opportunities that the church and Christians have. But Matt, with like the last minute or two in this segment, could you just paint a picture? You touched on it there in your last answer, but just paint a picture for where refugees are coming from, from the hardship, from uh, just kind of the places that many of the refugees coming to America, kind of the situations they're coming from. Yeah, I mean— it has changed a little bit in the last few years because of some federal policies, but, you know, I'd say over the last decade or so, um, well, the top countries of origins have been Burma or also known as Myanmar, which is in Southeast Asia. Um, Again, a lot of those folks, the reason they were persecuted is because they're, they're both ethnic and religious minorities. So uh, largely Christian, although also some Muslims who are also religious minorities in Burma, which is a mostly Buddhist country. Um, Bhutan has been a huge country in recent years. And again, this is an ethnic minority group that was, basically kicked out of Bhutan and has lived in camps in Nepal for many years. The Democratic Republic of Congo, which is a mostly a result of, of ethnic divisions and, and war that has been on, ongoing for many years. Um, we've seen a significant, significant number of Ukrainians. Um, and then we haven't seen a lot of Iraqis or Syrians or Somalis in the last few years, but those are groups that we might see come back again because they've been countries that have been kind of specifically excluded in the last few years. But Iraq, many of them are, are Christians as a, a significant minority. Others are people who serve the U.S. military uh, mm. as translators or another capacity. And for that reason, we're targeted by terrorist groups. 
Syria, obviously, it's a civil war that has been ongoing now for, unfortunately, uh, a number of years and doesn't show a clear sign of getting better. Um, and um, Somalia, likewise, there's been, mm. unfortunately, on and off civil wars for many years. So I'd say those are some of the top groups that we've seen um, and probably will continue to see more of. Uh, many of them are family reunification cases. So they come to Chicago because they've already got a relative here. And that's I think what we're most excited for at World Relief is being able to tell people who've been asking us for years, when is my husband coming? When is my brother coming? We may not know immediately when they'll come, but at least we can tell them there's some hope for that now. That's great. And and others are, you know, don't have that connection. So they often particularly need friends in the United States um, when they arrive to come alongside them. Matt is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief, and he's also the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table. And he recently wrote an article at Christianity Today uh, that we have been discussing uh, about how things may change or hopefully will change under President-elect Biden. And Matt, again, thanks for joining us. And uh, we were talking off air a little bit about uh, how things have changed uh, with the infrastructure of the country, uh, the infrastructure, and as it relates to refugees. Could you help us understand that a little more? Yeah, so as I, I said a little bit earlier, you know, the infrastructure for refugee resettlement in the U.S., like what happens once a refugee arrives, has really been done by nonprofit organizations, mostly faith-based organizations like World Relief or the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Immigration Refugee Services and um, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. So different religious groups and some non-faith-based nonprofits have, have done this for years. Um, but the when we've had a really stark decline in the number of refugees being resettled. So from 2017 till today, the number of refugees has gone down by about 85% nationally. Wow. And we've seen that at World Relief in 2016, fiscal year 2016, World Relief resettled about 8,300, 8,400 refugees across our network throughout the U.S. Um, in the past year that just, the fiscal year that just ended, we resettled just over 1,200. So it's a you know decline again, about 85% or so. And one of the effects of that is, like all the other resettlement agencies, we suddenly had almost more staff and volunteers than we actually needed for the very low number of, of refugees that were arriving. Wow. Um, and then we also just couldn't just financially sustain our operations in all the places that we were, because part of our budget is a federal uh, grant that comes on a per-refugee basis. So while our support from churches and individuals has actually grown, which we're super grateful for, the part of our budget that was from the federal government just went way, way down very quickly. So uh, at World Relief, we had some tough decisions to make. Our leaders did, and, and they. Um, I'm really grateful we haven't had to close down any of our locations in the Chicagoland area, although our resettlement numbers are down. But we did close down several of our offices in other parts of the United States, um, in Columbus, Ohio, in Nashville, Tennessee, in Boise, Idaho, uh, Akron, Ohio. So we are coming into this potential of a much higher level of refugee resettlement with far fewer places where we are actively ready to resettle refugees. Right. So we have a few months to hopefully gear up and um, staff up. But um, of course, that's challenging, um, both financially and just in terms of, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, this makes it all more complicated. But hopefully we'll be opening in some new locations or potentially reopening in some locations, but also staffing up in the places where we already are, like Chicagoland, right. to resettle a much higher number of refugees in the coming year than we have in the last couple of years. Well, and just to say it out loud, worldrelief.org is a great place to go. I mean, my, my wife has worked there. We have a number of people at our church that work or volunteer. We personally love the work that you guys are doing. I also know that in your article, 
you give some some practical next steps, which I'd love to spend the next couple of minutes talking about because I think it's really, really important that we get to it. What, 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 are the, what are some things that we can actually be doing right now to kind of, as you say, seize this opportunity? Yeah, I love that question. I, I think I would say the place to start now kind of immediately and you know if we didn't start this 10 years ago is discipleship mm-hmm. and i mean we are very aware at world relief that refugee resettlement is controversial in the united states and it's controversial in the american church um i don't think we used to presume that until four or five years ago we thought that you know refugees all have legal status they are all fleeing persecution and have these compelling stories so many of them are persecuted christians churches will obviously want to help with that and it sort of felt like that. And then in the last few years, it's become very clear that this is actually something that a lot of Americans don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that most American Christians have never really thought of as a biblical issue. And we've been polling on that. And unfortunately, it's a really small percentage of evangelical Christians in the U.S. who say they think about issues of refugees or immigration primarily from a biblical perspective. So, you know, I would, if there's pastors listening there, this is something that I think ought to come up in the course of, you know, preaching through the Bible. It's actually a really frequent theme, God's Mm -hmm. love for the the vulnerable and specifically including the foreigner, Um, or even just looking at some of the the heroes of our faith who were themselves foreigners, whether that's Abraham or um, Ruth or, um, you know, Jesus himself, who was Mm -hmm. a refugee fleeing, you know, a, a murderous edict from, from King Herod that we're all about to remember as we start the Christmas holiday. So I think that discipleship point is really important. And we've got resources at the World Relief website and the Evangelical Immigration Table website. Um, I also did a book a few years back, Seeking Refuge, that uh, is really focused with with some colleagues. I co-wrote that, that is focused on how do we think biblically about this issue. The second thing I would say is uh, is to advocate for refugee resettlement. And President-elect Biden says he will raise the ceiling, but... Um, I've heard some things from politicians before that didn't turn out to be true. So <laughs> I hope he's uh, going to hold, going to stick to that. But it would be really good for the president-elect, as well as the current president, who could still change his mind, and for members of Congress as well, who don't have as much of a role in resettlement, but they do have a consultative role under the law. So it's important for them to hear that their constituents want our country to continue to be a, a beacon of safety for those fleeing persecution. Mm-hmm. And then I would say, reach out um, here in Chicagoland, reach out to World Relief. If people happen to be listening somewhere else in the country, there may be a World Relief office or there may be another resettlement agency. Um, And if you go to that Christianity Today article, we put a link to every single office in the United States that does refugee resettlement. Um, But it's it's a great opportunity now to say, hey, how can we help you rebuild? Maybe that's financial support. Maybe that's, you know, we're gonna plan a, a drive for furniture in January or February or, you know, you can find out locally when the need is likely to be greatest or what we call welcome kits, which are just, you know, putting together the basic, you know, cooking materials and bathroom materials that a new family is going to need when they arrive. And then also volunteers, or as I said, mm-hmm. at least at World Relief, and I know this is true for other refugee resettlement agencies, our mission isn't just to help refugees and immigrants integrate into a community, it's to empower the local church to serve. Mm-hmm. And our sure. view is that we've been successful when we've actually helped to facilitate ongoing relationships beyond maybe the service provision period that World Relief has the resources to help a, a newly arrived family with. But we want to help people get on their feet economically, but we want them to be in connection relationally um, with, uh, with Americans and ideally from local churches for the long term. Mm-hmm. And that ends up being a reciprocal relationship. You know, it's just a friendship at a certain point, not a these people need help, but mm-hmm. there are people who are contributing, and we have new friends who have experiences who are very different than our own. 
And so that would be a great time to begin yeah. the process of being trained to be a volunteer. Obviously, there's some cross-cultural dynamics we need to help equip people for. Um, but uh, it'd be great to start that process in the next month or two because the number of arrivals will slowly increase probably starting in January um, to the point where by the end of, you know, by the middle of this year, I think we'll see much higher numbers. Yeah. And those volunteer opportunities, Matt, uh, I know many people who have worked with you guys and and they all that's often what they say about the impact that it had on their lives. As we close out, maybe uh, help people understand that as you serve and make relationships with refugees and you're helping the impact it's had on your life and what you've heard from yeah. other people, the impact it's had on their lives as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, honestly, I think there's something to be said in the midst of this crazy pandemic that we're all doing our best to get through. I have learned so much about resilience from mm. my refugee friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters in Christ who uh, I was I was on a call two hours ago with a, a colleague who's uh, was resettled from the Congo originally from the Congo. He's, you know, he left the Congo as a child, spent most of his life in Namibia. Um, and he's now a colleague down in World Relief in North Carolina. But just hearing some of his story and what he's gone through, I mean, I sometimes complain about, you know, I haven't left my house in a few weeks and <laughs> my kids are kind of overwhelming me right now. And there's a lot going on and some real things going on. But I, I have learned so much from from these folks who have gone through, frankly, just a lot harder things than I ever have, harder than I ever hoped to go through. But I think it's a moment when Americans could use some tutors and resilience and refugees have a lot to teach us in that. Yeah. Um, there's many, many other ways that refugees are a huge blessing. They, they're good for the economy. They're playing important roles in our economy. They're, um, you know, they're an important part of the church and an opportunity for the church, especially, you know, among those who we want to share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. Many refugees already do know Jesus and many others do not. And what an opportunity if we have the eyes to see it. And I, I fear that sometimes we don't have the eyes to see that, mm -hmm. that we've missed out on something that God and his sovereignty has done and invites us into. Um, but we might be too busy focused on our own concerns or Absolutely. too busy watching the wrong TV channels to know that this might be something <laughs> we should be excited about. Well, we'd encourage you to go to worldrelief.org. That's worldrelief.org. And uh, you can find out all of those opportunities. Also, if you're interested, Matt, uh, is the national coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table. You can go to evangelicalimmigrationtable.com. Matt, we're always uh, better off for you coming on. So thanks yeah. for your generosity. Thanks for your time, man. Thanks for thanks, coming man. on. Yeah, I'm always happy to do it. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us. I mentioned earlier in the show that uh, with it being Thanksgiving week, this is going to be our last show before Thanksgiving. And uh, if you need to hear our voices from four until six, you'll get to hear old interviews. Uh, and If they uh, need to hear our voices? I think some people no, are just like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do tomorrow from four to six? You know, they're just going to They might be feeling quiet. that, Brian, but they don't... No one needs to hear our voices. I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> make, make it a poll. Post it online. See what they not, say. Not even our families. <laughs> not even ourselves. <laughs> they could get by if we had to use a little, you know, whiteboard sheet or yes. something. They'd be fine. Exactly. Exactly. So we do. We hope that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And we are truly thankful for those of you who do listen to the show. And uh, whether it be by podcast or on the radio. So I thought it'd be fun to end this show, this last segment, by just talking a little bit of Thanksgiving. Ian, I'm just going to throw some questions at you. None of these are hard hitting. And uh, we'd love for the audience to play along. And, you know, if you're in your car at home, think about how you would answer these. So let's start 
Let's start nice and simple. Ian, your two favorite Thanksgiving, traditional Thanksgiving food that you guys would always have during your Thanksgiving meal. Two favorites. Non-dessert. This is the non-dessert category. Oh, golly. Um, there's a couple that come to mind. My mom would make this like cheesy potato thing, like little mm. diced, little diced potatoes with like a cream of mushroom thing and some cheese and some other stuff. That was always just just so so good. I <laughs> I, I don't I, I think I answered ham a couple years ago and people really <laughs> people were not happy with me. They're like, you don't have ham at Thanksgiving. I was like, I think we did. I think so. Did Maybe you really? Yeah, I think so. I could be way off, man. I don't. My family's enormous. Like, you know, we're the fourth largest okay. family on my mom's side with seven kids. So I got, you know, two uncles no with eight and one with 11. So they're all having their own kids. So it's, yeah, it's hard to like remember because it's just a huge, huge buffet situation. So it's sort of like throw some ham in. Why not? Yeah, you guys are having bowls of cereal at the end. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. If, if you if you missed the first pass, you probably were having cereal. Yeah. All right. I think I'm going to go with stuffing will always be number one for me. I'm a big uh, stuffing fan. Uh, I think I'm going to go mashed potatoes on the second one with gravy. Man, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of so carbs, a lot of carbs in those answers. Brian. That is what Thanksgiving is all about. <laughs> all right. We'll enter into the dessert category then. Two of your favorite desserts that would normally be out at the Simpkins house uh, at Thanksgiving. I'm going to say Ham. <laughs> yeah, it's like a ham shake um a ham shake Gross. i'm having a hard time even imagining other than pumpkin pie what is a traditional thanksgiving dessert yeah i don't know it's just it's got to be some sort of pie i'm going with apple pie i told you i don't like pumpkin pie but i yeah that's uh, a mistake although i i do i do remember the first time someone brought a pumpkin pie cheesecake that that was a pleasant surprise. I would, I would, uh, oh yeah, I'd, I'd rock that any year. Okay. All righty. Now we're going to go negative. Your two least favorite, nor- and don't say ham, your two <laughs> least favorite normal kind of traditional Thanksgiving parts of the meal. Stuffing and mashed potatoes. <laughs> That's not gross. Now, you, now you're just getting personal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to get so heated here on the common good. I don't, I don't love almost anything green bean related. So like the green bean casserole thing doesn't, uh, doesn't do it for me. Okay. Okay. Uh, how, how do you feel about my answer to this? I hate cranberry sauce. Yeah, I gotta go. I can't. <laughs> something, something's not right in your head, Brian. I gotta say a, say a prayer of deliverance for whatever's going on there. Yeah. I do not like cranberry sauce. I do not. So, all right. Next Thanksgiving <laughs> question. People getting to know us a little bit here. Do you you already told us earlier in the show that the depressing tradition, because you're from the Detroit area of watching the Lions regularly lose. How many in a row did they lose? I forgot about that losing streak. That was I think it was seven. I think it was seven. All right. So you're in the you're in the Detroit area. So other than watching the, you know, the Lions lose and listening to Kid Rock and Eminem, like what? What is Tradition, a favorite Thanksgiving soundtracks? A lot of Kid exactly. Rock, a lot of Madonna. <laughs> what is a what is a favorite memory or tradition for you that was kind of a regular Thanksgiving thing, or maybe it's a one time thing where you're like, oh, we did that on that one, and I remember it. What's a memory or a tradition? Well, and I mentioned this earlier. My my parents were always so uh, diligent Thanksgiving and Christmas 
um, before like we did anything for us, we always did meals on wheels. So we always drove into oh, Detroit right. and we did meals on wheels, uh, you know, for sometimes a few hours. And it's probably the kind of tradition that I appreciate a whole lot more now than I did when I was seven. But I mean, I loved, I loved the way they prioritized that. And it was, it was, it was great too, because we would do that. And then we'd have like our family time, which I'm one of seven. So our family's already pretty big. And then we'd go to the big extended family thing. So it was just like, it was like a like a food caravan and you just got to see all your family that you love so much. And I know that that's not a great answer when you're asking about the specifics of a, a tradition, but like just be, yeah, just being with family. But the Meals on Wheels thing in the beginning uh, is, is something that I, I hold real dear. Yeah, I can. Uh, that's a good one. I, I we used to our family would always go to the same places for every holiday, the same like I'd go to my Aunt Barbara and Uncle Tom's every Thanksgiving, like no matter what mm. Thanksgiving was at their house. And it was always had like the same rhythm to it. And now when I look back, I'm like, oh, that was always like that rhythm of getting there. And then we ate pretty early and then you'd like just be so stuffed and you'd fall asleep mm-hmm. in front of the football game, but then go have dessert. Oh, I just. You know, like Thanksgiving will always be going to Aunt Barbara and Uncle Tom's for me every year and then uh, and doing it that way. All right. Last one. Uh, be as sappy or non-sappy as you want. What is one thing right now that you are particularly thankful for? Oh, man. I, I'm Thanksgiving. Just, we got to ask. We got to end it this way, right? I'm OK with that, man. Yeah, I'm I'm so grateful for my family. I, and honestly, I thought about posing this online. Like there's obviously so many negatives to this season in COVID mm-hmm. and a pandemic and quarantine and just health and loss of job. Like I just feel so grateful for my family. And I, I mean, honestly, it's been tough, but like just the, the increased time with them and like the freedom to work in the basement and then pop up throughout the day just to say hi to my boys and like kiss my wife. Like that is those feel like such small things, but I, yeah, I I get emotional thinking about it, man. Even even just those little opportunities have I've been very very grateful for keeping again intention, knowing that you know there's still a lot of people suffering and people without work. Um, but that's that's definitely something I'm grateful for. Yeah, I was going to answer much the same way that uh, this has been a hard season with COVID restrictions and this and that. But in some ways, I'll look back on this as a sweet season of just having really. Uh, a lot of time with my family, a lot of time at home. And, you know, my kids are getting older and it feels like they're getting older quickly uh, that I'll always look back and just be like, oh, man, I'm really thankful for as hard and weird as 2020 was for church and school and and just everything. Uh, The ability even to do the radio show from home and then just walk downstairs and be with my family or uh, that kind of stuff. You know, you are reminded that, yeah, I really like my family. I really like Mm -hmm. to be around them and and I'm thankful for them. So I thought that would be a fun way to end as we go into Thanksgiving. And it goes without saying, Ian and I, I'll speak for Ian. We are very thankful for each of you out there. Mm -hmm. uh, And Ham. And Ham, who give us time and who listen. And yes, we're thankful for Ham. And uh, we hope, we really do hope that you have a great Thanksgiving holiday. We'll be back with uh, our next new show will be next Monday. We'll be back from four until six. But hey, use the time, listen to the podcast, find some old shows. uh, And we are thankful for you. Anyway, for Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. 